Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris. I am a filmmaker, a comedian, and a member of the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. <laughs> All right. You, uh, do, you, do you wear a, a zoot suit ever? Have you, have you uh, worn a zoot suit? I wear uh, dark black pants with some uh, some flare on them, little little glitter coming off of them, oh, right? Nice. And then That's one of those, beautiful. yeah. I got a, a blue shiny jacket, like a smoking jacket, but it's got black trim, black trim. So uh, it's really sharp, Josh. Really sharp. Wow, that sounds sharp. You've thought that out very clearly. What well, you know. It's not just me. It's the entire orchestra, Josh. We dress all the same. Sure, sure. This is practically a narrative podcast at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see an entire picture. Tommy can wear what he wants because he's the star, baby. He is. So we're talking about big band related things because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1977. And this episode is our flop episode focusing on one of the biggest failures of 1977, and that is Martin Scorsese's New York, New York. I can't believe it, man. This is our first Scorsese episode. And, uh, yeah, and then and of all the Scorsese movies we could talk about. I can't believe it. We've gone on to New York, New York. I don't know if we've talked about if there have been Scorsese movies in other years that we've uh, had seasons on, possibly. Uh, I'm going to look that up, but, you know, obviously we've talked about him on the Tarantino episode and on the George Lucas episode. I mean... It's almost impossible to not talk about Scorsese on most of these episodes. He's a huge figure in cinema. And that, I think, is why or one of the reasons why this movie is so notable, because not only is this a big flop, but it's possibly the biggest failure of Scorsese's whole career. And so it's really an outlier. Whereas when this came out, we people might have thought, oh, this guy who was being built up and made Taxi Driver right before this and, and Mean Streets and some really successful movies, maybe this is the end of him. And of course it wasn't. It was far from the end of Scorsese. So now looking back, this movie is kind of an anomaly as far as Scorsese goes in terms of in terms of box office success, in terms of popular culture success, in terms of uh, critical acclaim and, and all of that. It wasn't necessarily as massive a failure as some of the flops that we've talked about, it actually grossed $16.4 million on its budget of $14 million. So it exceeded the budget. But as we know, with, with, with Hollywood accounting, when you take into account advertising costs and marketing and all of that, it's a movie that was expected to make much more than that. And it was viewed certainly by the studio as a failure. And I think probably viewed by Scorsese uh, that way as well. Beep, 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 breaking news. Beep, 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 beep. Also the song for alternate casting. Uh, the only Scorsese film that would have been in the years we covered, which we did mention, I remember, I think in the epilogue of 1989 is his segment of New York stories. Yeah. And that's certainly not, uh, one of the more notable Scorsese works. So <laughs> we'll get to some other Scorsese films eventually, I'm sure. But this movie, even if it's not the one that he's most known for or most remembered for, is certainly an interesting film. And as you said, it uh, sent him into a crashing, spiraling depression. Which is also interesting. Lots of cocaine involved, I think, in in both in the making of this film and in the response to its failure. So yeah, yeah, really, yeah. cocaine, the cause and response to the problems <laughs> of this movie. And probably right in the middle there, if this is a cocaine sandwich, you got both pieces of bread and, and the meat all made of cocaine there. Yes, a cocaine <laughs> sandwich. That is really a pull quote to describe this movie. Um, so despite its relative failure, it actually was nominated for four Golden Globes including Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, uh, and Best Actor and Best Actress, Musical, or Comedy for the main stars of this movie, who are Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. And it was nominated for the only, as far as I'm concerned, good thing about this movie, for Best Original Song for the theme from New York, New York, which lost to You Light Up My Life. So How does that, that go? I'm not, you know how it goes. I'm not going to sing. But uh, quite the schmaltz standard, You Light Up My Life, which, to be fair, has become a standard from the movie, You Light Up My Life, which I am not at all familiar with. But um, 
Yeah. So it's one of these things. And I, I kind of wonder the Golden Globes often have this where maybe because Scorsese was such a big figure, even in 1977 and was so highly acclaimed that they just by default give him these nominations. I think that happens to this day with the Golden Globes, with some films that are expected to be great, but aren't. And they just end up with those nominations anyway. I mean, I look, like you said, the song deserves it. What was actor, actress, and what was the other one? Best picture. Okay, and not best, best picture. picture. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's not my favorite De Niro performance by any means, but I think Liza Minnelli's re- really great in this movie. I think Liza Minnelli's singing is really great. Yeah. Okay, movie. that's fine. She's. I mean, yeah, that last third of the movie where basically her singing the whole time is maybe the most riveting stuff in it. That it is. And interestingly enough, we're getting ahead of ourselves, maybe, but that last third. The big, like, extended Liza Minnelli number that comes from a, a movie within the movie that her character is starring in was initially cut in the in the first theatrical release. That well, all that the wasn't things him. they could have cut out of this movie. That yeah. was what they. Cut. I think that was the studio that cut that and not Scorsese. Though. Yes, but either way, bad choice. Um, <laughs> critics. Not really big fans of this movie, although mixed response. Roger Ebert said. Martin Scorsese's New York, New York never pulls itself together into a coherent whole. But if we forgive the movie its confusions, we're left with a good time. In other words, abandon your expectations of an orderly plot and you'll end up humming the title song. The movie's a vast, rambling, nostalgic expedition back into the big band era and a celebration of the considerable talents of Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. It's a good thing the movie inhabits a familiar genre, though, because the fact that we've seen dozens of other musical biographies helps us fill in the gaps in this one. And there are a lot of them. The movie originally came in at something like four hours, and the cuts necessary to get it down to a more commercial length are responsible for a lot of confusion. The confusions, as I've suggested, can be forgiven because the movie has so many good things in it. And I I can't say I was confused about the plot of this movie. I don't know if you felt that way. I wasn't confused. It just is almost, um, it's almost separated into three different parts, I'd say. You know, it's separated into thirds, really long thirds, but thirds. (laughs) And, um, you know, look, we should should talk about this now because we're going to be, I think it'll probably come up in your other reviews too, the dialogue and, the scene structure, like they, the the word on the street is that the actors were, uh, with Scorsese's, you know, kind of encouragement, improvising like everything, and it just got away from them, you know. So uh, as we've done, as we've talked about in the past on our Waiting for Guffman episode, how difficult it is to create a story, a coherent and really, really fleshed out, fully, fully realized story that we saw in Guffman. Uh, this one definitely got away from them. Yeah, so many of those scenes, they feel like they're lost in terms of improvising. And there's a lot of just circular, like, you think we should go to the place? I don't know. The place? That's where you want to go? Yeah, let's go to the place. Do you think, of, like, it's just, like, they can't figure out. It, it is repetitive. Yeah. yeah. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, the big band sounds are right, as are the sets and costumes and especially the movie conventions. New York, New York knowingly embraces a narrative line as formal and strict in its way as the shape of a sonnet. Even the sets are meant to look like backlot sets, not the real world. When Jimmy and Francine walk down a New York street, it's that New York street so many of us grew up with, the one that abruptly terminates in a row of brownstones because, after all, there was only so much studio space. Yet after one has appreciated the scholarship for about an hour or so, admiring Mr. De Niro's manic intensity and Miss Minnelli's way of desperately throwing out comic lines as if they were failed lassos, things that are often funny in themselves, one begins to wonder what Mr. Scorsese and his writers are up to. Why should a man of Mr. Scorsese's talent be giving us what amounts to no more than a film buff's essay on a pop film form that was never, at any point in film history, of the first freshness? Yeah. So I can't really say that I thought anything in this movie was funny. I don't know what that was. Yeah, I don't think she was throwing out like hot one-liners or cold one-liners either, you know? So yeah, it's, I mean, and as we've talked about in uh, other things, if not on uh, this podcast, definitely on the Piecing It Together where, where I we talked about The Irishman, which was my favorite movie of 
2019, which really feels like a long time ago, guys. It really <laughs> sure <laughs> does. <laughs> um, I love the humor in Scorsese's movies because I think it's also natural and the comedy comes out of like real dialogue and real characters. But this one, it doesn't have it. It does not, Josh. No, no, it doesn't. I, I don't think there was any humor, intentional or unintentional. I didn't find anything humorous in this movie. And it does feel like, I mean, Scorsese obviously is very familiar with film history, and he's clearly sort of like giving you a treatise on his perspective on these 1940s musicals, the the artificial sets and the production design and the musical numbers and everything. And it does kind of feel like an essay more than a story in a lot of moments, I think. So I think that's something that that review uh, gets to. Finally, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker called it an honest failure. This United Artists big-budget musical film directed by Martin Scorsese suffers from too many conflicting intentions. Scorsese works within the artifices of 40s movie musical romances and stylizes the sets in order to emphasize the shot-on-a-soundstage look. Evoking the movie past, he's trying to get at the dark side that was left out of the old cliché plots. But the improvisational Cassavetes-like psychodrama that develops between the stars seems hollow and makes us uneasy, and sequences go on covering the same uncertain ground. The director seems to be feeling his way through a forest of possibilities. The effect is of desperately talented people giving off bad vibes. And yeah, it really, not only in the the improvisation between the actors, but the whole structure of the movie definitely feels like nobody knew how to like shape this into a movie. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it really is, it's thirds. The movie is in thirds here, you know, and we can go over that in the next segment. But the writers, uh, Mardik Martin and Earl Mac Rock, Rauch, Rauch? Yeah. Anyway, sure. uh, the latter of them, best known for Buckaroo Banzai, both the <laughs> book and uh, the film. A uh, very Adventures different of Buckaroo movie. Banzai and the Eighth Dimension or something. But Mardik Martin, like... He had a ton of success. He wrote Mean Streets with Scorsese and Raging Bull with Paul Schrader and, you know, was writing up until a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken. So, so you know, this was more of an aberration, I'd say. Yeah, well, and, and given how much was improvised, you have to wonder how much of the writing, I mean, maybe in the plot structure it comes through, but dialogue-wise, I we don't know how much of the writing actually ends up on screen. And yeah, lengthwise, as as we mentioned, um, there there were multiple different, cuts of this movie, including one that was down to a lean two hours and 33 minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah. There is that four, four hour and 30 minute cut, which I think you should watch and report to. Yeah. Us. I think maybe that, that four hour or whatever version that you mentioned is, is just like a work print. A lot of times you read that about movies and it's not, it's not that those cuts were actually ever intended for release. That's just kind of the earliest version that they have, but it's a long movie. I, 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 we were discussing, I think this is the longest movie we've ever covered on this podcast. But in its defense, four hours and 30 minutes can go by like that if you're on enough cocaine. Yeah, that is very, <laughs> that's very, very, very true. The cocaine aspect. I feel like cocaine is key to understanding everything about this movie. You know, and if we're going to say that, like, hey, man, yeah, we know Scorsese had his cocaine battles in the 70s. and But uh, he did do the last waltz right after this. And I, I'm pretty sure he was probably coked out for that one, too. So I haven't seen know. the last waltz, but um, better than this movie, I'm guessing. I'm going to uh, w- let you watch a four hour and 30 minute cut of both. And then you can decide. <laughs> That sounds good. So, Jason, I know that you are a big Scorsese fan. Had you ever seen this movie before? I never have. This is one of the few uh, that I hadn't seen. So I was excited to see it. And uh, eventually I will be a Scorsese completist. He is, um, if not my favorite director, he probably is my favorite director, but definitely I think the most influential director of uh, all time and for my liking, uh, he definitely is. Yeah, I'm, I think as we may have mentioned, or I don't, maybe we didn't, but I, I'm sort of, I admire Scorsese and obviously he is hugely influential as, as you've said, um, but I usually am not really like a big fan of his movies per se. I can appreciate them more than I enjoy them. And I'm not sure that I did that either of those things with this one, but I, I had, I had also never seen this. I mean, I've seen plenty of Scorsese movies, probably not as many as you have, 
but uh, I've seen most of his most notable movies. This is not one that I had seen. And it's not like super accessible. It's not streaming anywhere. And there's a, a nice, a pretty extensive DVD, a 30th anniversary release that that was what we watched it on. But uh, in terms of uh, people kind of stuck at home or whatever, it's less available for them to watch. So I'm assuming, Dave, that you had not seen this uh, at all? No, I I hadn't even really heard of it until it came up on our list. But uh, but yeah, it seems to be an under-the-radar one for Scorsese. Yeah, it's kind of a forgotten Scorsese, eh, maybe for good reason. So, um, <laughs> uh, Jason, is there any other background on this movie that you wanted to mention? The only other thing to mention is the uh, Candor and Ebb songs, you know, that... One of the most uh, prolific and most famous songwriting duos of uh, the 20th century. They a lot of their songs were covered in this, and they wrote some new songs, including including that little ditty theme from New York, New York that we all just know as New York, New York now. Yes, and they were coming off them uh, along with Liza Minnelli, who they collaborated with on a lot of uh, stage productions were coming off the screen version of Cabaret directed by Bob Fosse, which came out a few years before this, which is a much better movie. Um, But that was all their music in that one. And that covers that, I guess. Yeah. The only other thing for, you know, tech nerds is that he shot it in a 166 ratio, a 32 millimeter lens. So that that was kind of to mimic that look of the time period of the films he was going for. 46 through 53 was the best I could find on that. Right. Yeah, that sounds right. And I think I saw in a, there was a featurette on that DVD where he said he initially wanted to uh, shoot it in in one three three, which is the Academy ratio. Um, that's the what sort of like an old television, uh, the square aspect ratio, which seems to be popular lately. Right. Yeah, it has been making a bit of a comeback, but uh, I guess they were unable to do that. So uh, that to me, even more than one six six evokes like the old Hollywood films. But uh, either way, it definitely Technically, that's one of the ways that it evokes those old movies. And we can talk more about all of that when we come back and get into our general thoughts on New York, New York. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about the flop of the year, Martin Scorsese's New York, New York. And I'll let you go first, Jason. As we said before, you're a big Scorsese fan. How did you feel about this as a Scorsese movie? Um, it's it's not one of my favorites, that's for sure. Um, I think the whole first hour is misguided. You know, as you said, there are things that you admire about Scorsese but might not enjoy. Like, I thought, like, look, it's always technical wizardry with this guy. And, like, I love the way that he shot the musical sequences and, you know, the movement of the camera um, right into solos and back into wides, like really, really kinetic stuff. And, you know, Laszlo Kovacs was uh, the DP who in the 70s, like, that's as big as you get. I mean, that guy shot tons of great movies in the 70s, you know, was one of the major figures as far as like the new American cinema movement. And also shot uh say anything which we talked about in 1989 so you know there you go so but you know among other things five easy pieces what's up doc king of marvin gardens ghostbusters in 84 but anyway so yeah like but it it just falls apart from the beginning the first 20 minutes when you meet the jimmy doyle character um at this big celebration to the, the war is over you know and uh and everyone's out partying and he meets this uso singer who's uh Liza Minnelli, Francine Evans, De Niro, his character is so unlikable from the beginning. And like, I don't ever think that's the case, whether you've seen him in, you know, uh, Taxi Driver or Cape Fear, like where he plays unlikable characters like this guy's just a louse. Right. You know, he's a he's a harasser and he just won't leave this woman alone. And there's nothing like likable about it, you know, so I think. I think this just got away from them from the beginning, this whole first hour. And he's this like kind of small time con man. But then you never see him con anybody like after he kind of gets his career going again. So so that to me was the big miss. They go on the road. Things get a little more interesting when they're playing in one of these uh, bands. And I like those, you know, kind of like lifestyle 
ideas of like, hey, we had to all pile into a bus and travel eight hours a day to get to our next gig. And so and the third act, which is a big Hollywood style, old timey musical, uh, feels like a totally different movie and um, is the most uh, energetic and fun to watch and really shows off Liza Minnelli as a singer. So that's kind of I know I just said a lot of things, but that's kind of how I broke it down. And, uh, yeah, I think the big miss is that first hour, and that's what really slowed everything down for me. Yeah, I agree. Just from the very beginning, this movie is lost. And to me, within the first 20 minutes or so, especially because it's so long, we should it, it is two hours and 43 minutes in the cut that is generally now widely available, the preferred version. If I hadn't been obligated to watch this for our <laughs> podcast, I think I might have turned it off after 20 minutes, even though it's a Martin Scorsese movie and any Martin Scorsese movie is notable and is probably worth watching. I, that De Niro character is just so grating and so unpleasant. And it's not even just that he's sort of unpleasant to the other characters. I mean, you mentioned Taxi Driver, which was the movie that, that Scorsese made right before this. And Travis Bickle is not like a good guy by any means and is not necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily treat other people in the movie well, but he's interesting to watch and you want to see what's going to happen next with Travis Bickle. And this character, there's just nothing interesting about him. He's this small time con artist, as you said, he's a, a saxophone player who's really, really into his own talent. And he's obviously supposed to be talented, but the way he just treats other musicians, he's so entitled that he feels like he deserves everything and is not willing to work hard or be humble in any way. Uh, he does harass Liza Minnelli's character from the very beginning. It's, it starts out, as you said, on uh, on v, is a VE day, no, VJ day at the end of World War II in 1945. And I kind of wondered, he, he makes some allusions to having fought in the war, and they never clarify this, but I kind of assumed that he didn't actually fight in the war, that that was yet another thing that he was conning people on, that he was pretending and that he was co-opting the real like pain that other people went through in order to try to pick up women and get gigs as a musician. And I just hated him so much from the very beginning. And I think there's movies where, and this movie is ultimately about kind of a toxic relationship between these two characters. And there's movies where that develops, but at some point early on in the relationship, you can see, okay, this isn't going to go well but I can understand why this woman would be drawn to this man, even though he's clearly wrong for her or he's clearly not a good guy. You can see what's alluring about him. And there was never any moment in this movie that convinced me that Francine would want to be with Jimmy in any way. That's a good point. That, look, the only one I'll dispute with you on that is I do think he served in the war because you do see in that giant party sequence, all these other vets like come up to him and talk to him and they're still in uniform and talking about the war. So I think, I think that I would disagree with, but otherwise I agree with you. Like, I'm like, why is she still talking to him? Why does she talk to him the next day? And then why does she keep talking to him after she finds out that he's been like not paying his bill at the hotel and scamming, you know, that way. I don't, I don't disagree with you. Like there are so many good movies about toxic relationships, but you want to be invested in that relationship. This one, I, I felt the same way. Like he is very selfish. He's a self saboteur, which is also an interesting character trait, but this, I don't know what happened. It just feels like it got away from all of them on this one, you know? Yeah. And I can see almost like when they, when they first start talking, and as some of those reviews alluded to, sort of the idea, the, the academic idea of this movie is to take the structure of those old 1940s romances where really the men would kind of behave in a similarly harassing way almost, and not to the degree that Jimmy does in this movie, but I could almost see that like maybe the point here is that Scorsese is trying to point out that the behavior of the characters in those old movies that we were meant to find romantic and endearing and we're going to root for that relationship was actually quite unpleasant. And if we exaggerate it to a ridiculous degree, we can show you that. But I don't think that that really comes across. And I can't imagine there were a lot of audiences in 1977 or even now who had that level of understanding of film history in order to see this as that kind of commentary. 
Yeah, and I uh, and I have a film podcast, and I still don't have that level of uh, understanding there. So, because I mean, you still need to root. Like at some point, he has to do something to be like, oh, I could see why, you know, she finally gives him his her number or something. You know, she does all the redeeming things. Like they're at the audition, and he's kind of again, like you're saying, he's like, you don't understand this style, and like. I can get that, like this frustrated artist who wants to move his art forward. And then she kind of saves him with her singing, which uh, I would agree. The best part of the movie is Liza Minnelli's singing, especially that third act, man. But the world goes around in New York, New York, like just powerhouse stuff. But um, yeah, I, I that's where it lost me. And then when they go on the road, I think it becomes a different story and you see more grounded characters and it had it started there or had it started at the audition or maybe like maybe the movie starts and they have to share a cab and, you know, well, I'm late for an audition. So just come along. I'll you know, I'll pay for your next ride or whatever. And it starts in some type of meet cute old Hollywood meet cute style way, you know, like that could have worked for me. And I think the characters would have been much that character would have been much more redeeming and you would have had much more motivation for her to like him and like. Now we're off and running in something a little more old timey that works. But yeah, this um, uh, I mean, dude, you just you just can't get past that first hour without like it, it kneecaps the whole movie. Yeah. And I didn't even I mean, maybe I was just so against it by that point that I, I couldn't even get into it in the second hour, really, when they're on the road, like you're saying. And it does shift into a different kind of movie. And at least they're maybe on more equal footing at that point because they're both members of this band that's being led by uh, Lionel Sanders' character, and uh, what is it? Uh, not not Tommy Dorsey, obviously, although maybe inspired by Tommy Dorsey, but whatever the character's name was. Yeah, the Tommy band. Dorsey. The Tommy Dorsey Orchestra is actually in that VJ um, sequence. The big that's the band that's playing at the big VJ day a VJ day party there. Yeah, but they're both in this band, and uh, Jimmy is playing the saxophone, and Francine is singing. And they're kind of trying to collaborate on writing some songs and they're trying to get their own their own stage time. And that's the the one part of the movie where you sort of feel like they're maybe their relationship is working or they have some sign of sort of equality in their relationship. But even during that part of the movie, Jimmy keeps acting like such a dick all the time that it's so unpleasant. And the way they get married, there's this long sequence where uh, they're in their hotel room and Francine has been writing lyrics to songs that are about Jimmy, I guess. And I'm not sure what songs those turn out to be, but he reads the lyrics and they must be really nice about him for some reason and uh, decides that he's inspired by that to, to want to marry her, or at least that seems to be his thought process because we don't ever hear it. And he just says, get your coat. And he drags her out to this justice of the peace in the middle of the night without telling her where they're going. And he just decides that they're getting married and she's hesitant for good reason. And so what should be, I guess, a romantic scene of they've decided to get married and they're committing to each other is just yet another example of him being inconsiderate and, and unpleasant. I can't, I, I wish I could uh, argue these things with you, but it just, uh, I mean, obviously like uh, I didn't mind that as much as I minded him in the first hour, but like, it's weird because he's like descending in his unpleasantness, but because we've seen him at his most unpleasant, it just feels like it's adding to the unpleasant. Right. Right. And I mean, even there's also before that, there's a big scene where he drives out to, to see her on the road and he grabs her again, incredibly rude, possibly ruining her job, grabbing her off stage and forcing her out to talk to him in the middle of the woods. And that should be his big moment of declaration. Like, I drove all this way because I, I'm so in love with you. And he starts out by saying, like, I love you. And then he's like, well, no, I, I like you a lot. I care about you. Like, he can't even do that. He has to, like, undermine, you know, he's like, he's like negging her or something. You know, he's like a pickup artist from the <laughs> the, the, the mid 2000s or something in, in his wanting to like cut her down even as he's trying to get her to be in a relationship. Well, and it's not just her or she who, you know, kind of forgives all this behavior. Like every time he's a dick to anyone, they're like, eh, you get a job with us. You know, like right. you mentioned that sequence, what happens right after he goes on the road with them as a saxophone player, or, you know, the record labels like, yeah, we'll make it all right for you. You know, as long as we sign her and it's just like, um, a lot of bad things like I, I liked. OK, here's one thing I liked and you're not going to be surprised. The energy of uh, 
the Harlem Club and you know the the, the Clarence Clemens uh, supporting role. Hey man, yeah. I love love the big man, and he's playing a trumpet here, so that's a little weird. But uh, but I do like the energy of the scenes in the. I mean, it's a black club, you know, um, and just how he fits in better musically there than he does with like these kind of like traditional going out of style like um i guess you like big bands that are mostly white people right and i that was maybe one of the themes of this movie about him being sort of ahead of his time musically and that's why he has trouble getting these gigs because he's more into this experimental jazz at a time when the the very uh rigid big band sound is what everyone is going for but Scorsese doesn't seem all that interested in that as a theme, and it doesn't really develop because the movie isn't really about that. The movie is just about this horrible, toxic relationship that takes over everything. And so even in a scene like set at that Harlem club where we're getting to see these musicians play and the vibe and all of that, it immediately comes back to him arguing with Francine or arguing with people about Francine. And it just... It, it never really develops that idea very well, I don't think. But, you know, you're right. And, and, and there are, the music in this movie is great. All of the music, not just the theme song, which of course is the most famous thing that came out of this movie, but the incorporation of the older songs, songs that existed from the 30s and 40s that the characters sing, the new songs by Kander and Ebb, uh, just the jazz, all of it is really good. And it made me feel like I wanted more of a musical, like a traditional musical out of this than I got. I mean, not that I want to hear Robert De Niro sing, because I don't, but um, but the music is really good. And the set design, there are certain sets in this movie, especially the club, when he gets kicked out and they're dragging him through this like hallway yeah, with all that, these light bulbs. I mean, yeah. some of that set design is just amazing. Yeah, that should be as iconic a Scorsese shot as there is, because like, Again, that's that long track that he does that you see in so many movies in here. He's going from close to wide or whatnot. But, um, and yeah, that looks amazing. That does look amazing. That whole club looks amazing, like the different rooms there. Um, I agree with you. Like, I love the camera work. I love the music. Um, Liza in that third act, uh, that song, and the world goes around. Man, she just drills it, you know, and that's really impressive. And uh, it's just too bad. I, I would have loved, I think you're right, man. What if he did just tackle a, uh, a Scorsese version of a classic Hollywood musical. That would have been, that would have been really interesting, you know? So I think, again, I admire the ambition of this film, but it it just, um, yeah, nothing, it it wasn't fully realized by any means. Yeah, definitely not. And uh, I, I would love to see what he would do with a traditional kind of musical. And, and I think we should emphasize again, that last I don't know if it's quite the whole last third, but the best part of 40 minutes. Yeah. The best part of the movie is the part that Robert De Niro is not in (laughs) after, after Jimmy and Francine break up and Francine becomes a big movie star. And there's that very, very long sequence with, like you said, the world goes round and happy endings. These songs that are meant to be part of like a movie within the movie, a movie that Francine is starring in and it's super stylized and it very much evokes old Hollywood movies. I mean, the thing that evoked to me most strongly is the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born from 1954, which of course, you know, stars Liza Minnelli's mother. And there's a very long sequence. Uh, I think it's called Born in a Trunk is the name of the song, where it's also meant to be a movie within the movie of Judy Garland's character starring in as after she's become a massive star and kind of left her dickhead ex behind. So I... I, I I hadn't seen that as a reference point as much, but I have to think that that is a massive reference point for Scorsese in this movie. And that sequence is just so good with Liza, Liza Minnelli, as you said, just knocks it out of the park with the way she sings, her performance, the bigness of it, and the sets, the the camera work, just all of that. I wanted that to be the movie, and but it's almost just like an aside. It's like a footnote. Yeah, I did too, to be honest with you. Like, she's... She's mesmerizing, like you're drawn to her and you can see why she developed her reputation as like as a live performer, as like someone who you have to see live. Like the power of that is just amazing. And you had mentioned Cabaret. Didn't she win an Oscar for Cabaret? Maybe. If she okay. didn't, she, she maybe she should have. I, I should have looked that one up. But, Dave, you want to look that up real fast? Uh, uh, but I mean, sure. Cabaret was certainly like, even if she didn't win an Oscar for it, it was a massive success. Yeah. But um, again, like she's one of those few people who 
musically can radiate off the screen. That is not easy to do, you know, like there's a definite, um, you know, the, the medium is, is, is film, like to make you feel like you're immediately there is really, really shows what a talent she is. And she did win for Cabaret. Yeah, and deservedly so. Cabaret is really good. And again, way better than this movie. Yeah, it seemed like Scorsese just didn't know what he was going for. And that he, again, includes that almost as like an obligation. And just to get right back to the annoying, improvised, circular dialogue. And the, as, as, as Pauline Kael mentioned, the John Cassavetes style, like psychodrama, which just does not work at all. Yeah, it's not my favorite uh, stuff in there. I mean, I, I think there was one scene where where she's pre- the the scene in the uh, are they they're in his car and they're yelling and that one I think got a little closer of you know you're scared to be a mom I'm scared I'm scared to be a dad I'm not ready for this and but it, at this point you've written off that character it's just like of course he's not going to take care of his kid because he's a jerk, you know? So, right. so uh, I agree with you. I think there was a scene with the two of them that I re- had read, like that got so intense with the improvisation that both that Liza De Niro and Martin Scorsese all had to go to the emergency room. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and also I wonder if, uh, you know, there's a fancy word going around right now called entanglement. Supposedly she was romantically, uh, entangled with both De Niro and Scorsese as the making of this went on. But um, what it really comes back to, Josh, is uh, the lack of clarity uh, in your brain in, uh, when you make a cocaine movie, I think. So. <laughs> I knew it was going to come back to cocaine. <laughs> I feel like the movie about all of that stuff that you were just talking about is way more interesting than this movie uh, is. You know, they tried something and uh, you go through you go through the failures to get to the successes and obviously what happened the next time De Niro and Scorsese went out and made a a narrative film together, raging bull. So, Hey man, you know, right. And, and, and this came in between two of Scorsese and De Niro's most notable collaborations, two of Scorsese's most famous films, taxi driver and raging bull. And in both of those cases, De Niro plays a character who is often unpleasant and inconsiderate and not likable at all. But yeah. those movies are structured in a way that you are drawn into their worlds and you want to see what those characters are going to do. And this movie just isn't. I agree. I think this one, like I said, like sometimes you go too far over the line to know until you know where it is. And this is this is that. And I wonder, you know, we keep talking about Scorsese in that aspect. I wonder if De Niro like also was like, man, I just I just took this character out on such a limb that. Cause like, you know, I think of Cape Fear and he's like, that's probably his most wretched character, but he's so charismatic in that movie. And that's another Scorsese movie, you know? And it's like, uh, man, that, that, that it's a totally different thing. This one was just a miss, you know? Yeah. And I think that the charisma is a big part of it. Like I was saying earlier, like, even if this is a bad person, you want to understand the appeal that he has, that he can draw someone in and you just never never do. And, and you do have to put some of that on De Niro, especially given that they were allowed to improvise so much. I mean, a lot of creation of that character does come down to De Niro himself. Yes. But on De Niro's, uh, plus side on this one, uh, when Kander and Ebb turned in their first version of the, what, what became the theme song for New York, New York, he's like, this is, this isn't it. It's too soft. Go write something else. And then they wrote New York, New York. So, uh, that, that's good. That's that good is thing. good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, that that song is fantastic and is clearly the best. I mean, the other music is good too, and but that song really stands out and is certainly the best thing to come from this movie. So, Dave, I assume you had not uh, seen this one. Yeah, no, hadn't hadn't been able to find it or anything. Yeah, right. So, Dave has nothing to offer. That's okay though. Um, <laughs> should we uh, should we rate this, Jason? Did you have any other thoughts? That you I, I mean. To share? I think we should shout out uh, Georgie Ald, who was the, I mean, De Niro learned how to play saxophone for this, but w- the saxophone was so advanced that was being played. That's the name of the musician who was actually playing the saxophone. So, I mean, really awesome stuff. Yeah. And I think he plays uh, another musician in the band as well. Yeah. On screen. You're um, right. So, so yeah, great stuff. And uh, even though your guy, Clarence Clemens, didn't uh, dub the saxophone playing, it's, it's, it's still good. 
Um, I know. As soon as I saw that in the credits, I thought, "Oh, this is this is something." Uh, at least I got that going right. Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, so uh, okay, yeah. What yeah. are we giving it? At? What, yeah, what at, are we... at, a, at a five saxophones, maybe five uh, brass instruments. We'll go with here. So. Okay, you be broader than the saxophone. No, saxophone's okay. fine. I'm going to give it two and a half saxophones. So uh, you know, it's ambitious. There's so much to look at technically, and the music alone gets me to two and a half. But I know I'm guessing you're going to rate it lower and I can't really fight you on that, but I just think the music's so amazing and the camera work's so good that it, it gets a two and a half for me. Yeah, I give it a two out of five. And I mean, the music is good and the camera work is good, but there's just, it's just so long that there's just not enough of that to appreciate as, among all the other stuff that is really tough to get through. So ambitious, definitely, but I just don't, I don't think anything really works here. So Two out of five from me. Not a great movie. But, well, that's uh, a flop, Josh. It There's is a, a flop. And it, in Man. fact, is deservedly a flop, I guess we could say. But we'll come back and talk about the legacy of New York, New York. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we have been talking about the box office Failure, the flop, Martin Scorsese's New York, New York. And uh, I mean, it's interesting, I think, to talk about the legacy of this movie in sort of a, a negative, but also a positive in that, I mean, this movie, I don't know what kind of influence it had on Martin Scorsese's career. I mean, the fact that this movie was such a failure, how that influenced what kind of movies he made next. I mean, as we talked about before, the next movie he made was Raging Bull, which was a huge, huge success and definitely put him, if he was off track, put him right back on track as a major filmmaker with critical acclaim and awards and all of that. But, and and was much more in the realist style that his early films were in. And I, I don't know if that was a reaction to the sort of negative response to this movie, or it was just uh, cocaine, as we uh, I think about. it made sense. But then right after that, he did The King of Comedy, which I think, you know, if we want to talk about a Scorsese-De Niro collaboration with a potentially unlikable lead um, that really, really works, that's, that's an amazing movie. And that movie's so far ahead of its time, and I think is just in the last decade, maybe getting the appreciation it, it does, it deserves. So maybe they don't get to the King of comedy. Maybe they're not able to craft that the way as um, perfectly as they do. If they don't, if they don't strike out here, I'm going to look at it as the positive because they have such a good track record together. Yeah. And I actually haven't seen the King of comedy, which I know you had recommended. And of course was uh, in much discussion recently because of Joker, uh, <laughs> which is, clearly on par with everything that Scorsese has made. Well, but uh, I mean, you know, I mean, we know Joker was heavily influenced by Scorsese, yes, as yes. was pretty much every filmmaker, you know, in America and maybe the world. So Right, yeah. yeah, Scorsese, well, it's interesting. Scorsese is hugely influential. This movie, not at all influential. Yeah, you want, does it have any type of, like, resurgence where people are watching it and like, oh, here's here's something good and we should watch it, you know, or no? I mean, I think it does among certain... Orders. Uh, looking on Letterbox, there were some critics that that I respect who were saying very positive things about it. I don't know that it's had like a general resurgence. As we were saying, it's not widely available, and I think it is forgotten. One thing, uh, influence-wise, that that uh, I saw a lot of people mention and that I noticed as well is that it seems like it was heavily influential on La La Land, on Damien Chazelle. And I can see that. I think La La Land is a better movie and maybe a better version of this kind of romance between these two characters. I also got a little bit of whiplash in the uh, scenes with De Niro. That's what I thought. Yeah, where he's the band leader and he's yelling at his uh, bandmates about yeah, being Yeah, yeah. That J.K. Simmons style character and per yeah. the, per the perfection at any cost. That's what I thought. That that was one that I, that I, that I kind of picked up on there. So... Yeah, I'm not saying it hasn't influenced other films or whatnot, but like, yeah, we, it's, you know, hey man, we get these flop episodes and sometimes they're as bad as a one-off Lindsay Lohan movie and sometimes it's Scorsese or Terry Gilliam, right? So right. They're, they're worth examining and, um, you know, that would be, uh, I love most Scorsese movies, but I would say go watch The King of Comedy for the realization of something like this. 
Yeah, yeah. And then I Which is not a musical. Right, no. But if you want to watch it, you can watch La La Land. It's it's pretty good. <laughs> so this was also, I mean, De Niro went on obviously to a huge career and continued working with Scorsese, but this was kind of a flop for Liza Minnelli as well. And after she won that Oscar for Cabaret, she was in a series of failures kind of culminating with this one. And her acting career in film, at least, was very spotty going forward from this movie. Um, She didn't do a lot of film. Um, She kind of concentrated on stage work and uh, and probably also on cocaine, much like Martin Scorsese did. (laughs) Well, I mean, but I think she got I mean, besides the Golden Globe nomination, Overall, the reviews for her were probably pretty good in this movie, I think. so. Yeah, it, the reviews were kinder to her, although I did. I think it was Vincent Camby in the New York uh, Times Review who uh, refers to her as a non-looker is his way of describing her. Well, that's, that's not, that's, that's not yeah, nice. But really, I, that, yeah. I, I mean, if anything, I'm going to talk about the character and maybe she wasn't cut out for all that improv because the character didn't have any really strong point of view except, Jimmy, I love you. Let's make this work or something like that. You know? Right, so. right. Maybe she wasn't really uh, cut out for that. And I think you can yeah. see because she comes alive in those scenes where she does what she is cut out for, which is those big musical production numbers, which she's fantastic at. Yes, um, but uh, but Dave would like to know that in season two of Arrested Development, when Tobias sings New York, New York, Lucille too, played by Liza Minnelli, has a quick little line saying, everybody thinks they're Frank Sinatra. So that's a fun reference point to this and and, you know the sinatra version of new york new york is the best known one the yankees used to play the sinatra version after they won and they played the liza minnelli version after they lost until liza minnelli was like that's messed up and she complained about it and then they just played all the sinatra version but i love this liza minnelli version yeah her version is great and of course the song really more than anything is the legacy of this movie and i think the majority of people who know that song don't know this movie don't even know that it comes from a movie. And I will say I was one of those people. I had no idea that this wasn't just a Frank Sinatra song until we were researching uh, background and discussing, you know, maybe having an episode about this movie. And I was aware of the existence of this movie, but I never connected the song to this movie because it was so separate from it. It was just one of Sinatra's big signature numbers. Yeah, you could have thought the opposite, that they named this movie after the song. Right. Yeah, you absolutely sure. could have. And and that it was something that had been performed. And I think that's another thing is that, you know, Sinatra's heyday was was much earlier. And so you might assume and because the song is in this throwback big band style that you might assume that that's a song that Sinatra put out in like the 40s or 50s. But Sinatra didn't record this song until 1980. So it's a, yeah. a thing that's all kind of lost to time that you don't realize the progression of how that worked. Yeah, I thought it was 79. You're probably right, though. But uh, yeah, so. Um, it's, it's a very, but Josh, are we saying, you know, time is just a flat circle because that's a whole nother thing. And Dave should probably be on cocaine to have that discussion. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I think, I think you're right that I think he recorded it for an album in 1980, but had started performing it in concert a couple years earlier. I really, really picked up on it from this movie and, and made it into his own. And it's a great song. It's a really good song. Yeah, so we mentioned all the big, the, a lot of the big players, some of the, you know, uh, Marduk Martin and Laszlo Kovacs and obviously Scorsese, De Niro, and uh, Liza with a Z. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, look, we, we tried, guys. We tried on this <laughs> one. So, But the only other thing I'd say is, like, we are seeing more movies play with aspect ratios now, and I think the 133 seems to be trending, but uh, maybe there will be some more 166s coming out. Who knows? So Right. Yeah, we do. I do think we see that more often with the aspect ratios and maybe because people, I mean, people watch movies at home on their widescreen TVs and, and you can play with that a little more easily and sometimes really effectively and sometimes not as much. Um, the other sort of general stylistic influence I wanted to mention is the idea of these these kind of auteur filmmakers like Martin Scorsese who decide they want to make weird musicals. Uh, The main one that I always think of as kind of a companion piece to this one is One from the Heart, which was Francis Ford Coppola's musical that he made in 1982 that was an even bigger failure than New York, New York, basically ruined uh, Francis Ford Coppola's career and is set in Las Vegas, where we uh, are all based, and is even more artificial than New York, New York 
with the way the sets are, are put together, was shot all on sound stages, and is also about sort of a doomed romance with Terry Garr and Frederick Forrest. And I actually like that movie. I think that's a much better movie than this. It's like an hour shorter. Um, and Coppola is not necessarily the guy that you would expect to make an hour shorter film either there. Yes, so. that is true. Um, but I was trying to think of other movies where these like kind of serious, dramatic auteurs decide to make musicals. And the only other one I came up with was Dancer in the Dark, the Lars von Trier movie. Well, um, how about, uh, I mean, he, it's not necessarily a serious answer, but Woody Allen's Everyone Says I Love You. That's a that's a good film, you know? So. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, actually, but certainly Woody Allen, someone who uh, was a major filmmaker of the same time period, who we may be talking about later this season. Hint, hint. Yes. <laughs> what about uh, Daniel Day-Lewis? Uh, obviously not a filmmaker, but uh, going to Nine after There Will Be Blood. Oh, that's oh, a yeah. horrible, that's a horrible movie. Yeah, that's yeah. a horrible movie, but but that's a good that's a good example of it. I think sometimes these really serious artists decide they're they want to interpret the musical in some way, and no. uh, the results are interesting. Go so. watch uh, Go watch Hamilton on Disney Plus, guys. No, I mean, look, that's uh, yeah, that's look. We know Spielberg's remaking West Side Story as we speak. Speaking of uh, contemporaries of Scorsese, there, so. Who knows? Uh, but uh, it's it's clearly not an easy genre. But I do think like the sets, which we which he like, you know, hangs a lantern on, so to speak, as artificial are cool. And the camera work is fantastic. And, you know, the music is top notch. So that's that's what you're in for on this one. That is true. Just listen to the soundtrack. <laughs> Uh, and maybe maybe look at some still images from the movie. So um, <laughs> that's New York, New York. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You sure can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Some call it the New York, New York of websites. <laughs> um, we're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. AwesomeMovieYear.com, basically out, effective, solid. Yeah. Uh, I'm at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, which is uh, also struggling a little. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and also check us out on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what is coming up in our next episode? Well, Josh, we're taking a little detour on this one, uh, as we've done in the past uh, uh, for similar episodes. This is our Cannes Film Festival winner. But instead of going with the Palme d'Or, uh, which is a film called Padre Padron, we wanted to explore a Robert Altman movie that uh, Shelley Duvall won Best Actress for, and that is called Three Women. And that is quite an interesting film. So tune in next time for Three Women, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.